This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Part of being a steelhead angler in the 21st century is to really embrace the idea of being a guardian for these fish, not just the beneficiary. It's a privilege to be on a steelhead river. And there's something mysterious and visceral and powerful about being on these watersheds, looking for these fish and hoping to cross paths with a fish that's been out and back. It's humbling. How can we not step up and not let these things slip away? Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle. Hope everybody's doing great. Today is our maiden voyage with our new co-host, Mr. Bill Cooksey from Tennessee. What's happening, Bill? Hey, what's happening this morning, Aaron? I'm glad to be here with y'all and uh, uh, looking forward to this conversation because this is this is something I don't know a lot about, and that's always uh, that's always a good time to learn. Excellent. Well. Thanks for joining. Thanks for being part of this. We're, we're lucky to have you. For folks who didn't listen to our promo, and there can't be many, but Bill is a <laughs> four-time Bill's a four-time Tennessee duck calling champion. He's a waterfowling beast. He's a whitetail man, a turkey man. He's, he brings a lot of experience and acumen to our podcast and uh, going to bring us a whole other chunk of the country for conservation and all of his good contacts down there in the Mississippi River Delta. So we're going to have some fun with this. He's a great guy and going to be a great co-host. And today we're going to be talking about steelhead and and by extension salmon and Northwest rivers and what goes on up there. And we have a great guest for this today. Today we have Greg Fitz. What's happening, Greg? Hey guys, what's happening? And we're going to call him Fitz because that's what his friends call him and we're his friends. That's right. (laughs) New friends, but definite friends. And first, I'll tell you a little bit about Greg. He's the communications manager for the Wild Stillhead Coalition. And he's a a journalist, essentially, and a writer. And he does a lot with Steelhead. And he's done uh, a lot of pieces in in publications like the Flyfish Journal, Steelhead Journal, the Drake, many folks know. He's done some conservation-type stuff for American Rivers and Patagonia. He's been in a lot of different publications and he's also uh, one of the tireless warriors for steelhead. And that's why we have him on because, boy, steelhead are having some trouble. And he's going to detail that and detail what we can do about it. But as we know, when we do this podcast, we start with what we have been doing outside. So Greg is our esteemed guest, or Fitz is our esteemed guest. You get to start <laughs> it off. Hopefully you've been doing something pretty awesome outside for us. Man, you know... Um... I wish I had uh, a better story for you. I uh, I made it up. I got an old boss who lives in Juneau, Alaska, and I did a little silver salmon fishing up there with him in September. But really, it's kind of been an all hands on deck moment. Uh, we launched uh, Wild Steelhead Now or Never at the end of October, and we rolled into a big fundraiser right after that. So it's been a lot of computer wow. time. Yeah. Um, but it's been really busy, and it's 
been really an incredible response. And so um, I'm keen to get out here soon, but it's been busy the last couple of weeks. Hey, you got to pay the bills. What yes, about sir. you, Bill? What have you been doing? You know, last week was a hectic week with a whole lot of work, um, but I did get out and work on the duck blind a little bit. We opened up right after Thanksgiving, but the really cool thing right now, I'm at a redfish and duck lodge on the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I mean, I'm, I'm down here in Burris near Venice, Louisiana. Cool area, cool lodge. Um, we're taking 14 Louisiana lawmakers duck hunting tomorrow morning to get them in the marsh and they get, I get to meet with them in my office instead of theirs. And that's always a good time. <laughs> How about you, Aaron? That's Last awesome. time I talked to you, you just, your son had just killed an elk. How about you? Yeah. Well, that's been kind of the story, Bill. Uh, we spent 10 days this year trying to get my boy, his first elk. Last year was his first year. He's 16. Last year he took a shot and missed after another seven or eight days. But this year we got it done. He got a cow elk last Saturday and we've been rejoicing as a family. We, nice. we, we my whole family is part of it. My wife and daughter didn't go uh, with us, but man, they love it. They love eating it. We love butchering. We do all our own butchering. We, we love cooking it in all different kinds of ways. And the, the trials and tribulations of me and my boy trying to get this elk have been kind of a big deal for the whole family. And so when we came home, we flashed the lights and honked the horn and they came running out and everybody was all happy. And we did a happy dance in the front yard. And so that, that was a great family moment. One that I'll never forget for sure. So definite fun time in the woods awesome. and this week Thanksgiving's coming. So tomorrow my boy and I are going to go do a little casting blast where we float down the river and see if we can find any ducks and geese at the same time that we cast and see if we can catch any brown trout. So awesome. that's a good, that's a good family fun too. So we'll be happy about that. Yeah, it sounds incredible. Let's jump into uh <laughs> let's jump into this. Bill, I know you you wanted to start us out. Why don't you why don't you hit up Fitz with your first one? Yeah. Um you know that's one of the interesting things coming from different parts of the country, Fitz. I've once in my life seen a steelhead caught. I mean I've just I've done a lot of trout fishing, but not, you know, at the right time in the right rivers to be around a steelhead. And I can say that that fish was wilder than about any fish I've ever seen caught. But, you know, what is a steelhead? What makes it what it is and, and what makes it so special? Yeah, right on. You know, um, in the simplest terms, a steelhead is a migratory rainbow trout. And these fish co-evolved with Pacific salmon. They live in the same watersheds up and down the West Coast. They range from originally Southern California all the way up through to Alaska and the Russian Kamchatka Peninsula. And before we built dams that blocked their passage, you know, they swam thousands of miles inland. And, um, you know, today we still have some steelhead in Idaho, but they used to go up through the Columbia, up into British Columbia, uh, down through the Snake, uh, all into Southern Idaho. They're all over the place. And, you know, it's, it's almost um, not enough to just describe them as a migratory rainbow trout because the real key to these fish is their astounding diversity. And when you start getting into them, you, it just gets overwhelming fast. They, uh, we talk about summer and winter steelhead. And summer steelhead are fish that enter the river systems, um, obviously in the summer, in the fall but they enter uh, sexually immature and they're going to migrate huge distances to get up to their spawning grounds and hold and wait and sexually mature in the rivers. Uh, in the cold months, uh, we've got winter steelhead pushing in and those are fish that arrive um, sexually mature, ready to go. Um, and not every watershed has both. Some, some coastal systems will have summer and winter steelhead, steelhead populations. Some inland systems will only have summer steelhead. And within those populations, you're going to have fish that are coming early, coming late. They're born in fresh water. Some of them out of the same nest might decide to stay as a resident rainbow trout. Some of them are going to take this huge evolutionary risk and travel all the way out to the Pacific Ocean 
to feed and get big. They're going to travel as far as the coast of Japan. And then at some point, two, three, four years later, they're going to decide to cruise right back to those natal waters. And they're going to come in different pulses and they kind of sneak in. They don't necessarily push in as these huge floods like a salmon does. Um, even within winter populations, you're going to have some that come real early, December, January. You're going to have some that show up late. And that diversity is the key to their resilience and their survival and how they sort of thread into all of these systems. And then even taking a step back, you know, you've got all these different life histories and they all get encompassed as a steelhead because they're migratory rainbow trout. But, you know, in Southern Oregon and Northern California, you got this cool life history of these little half pounders and their little one salt 16 to 18 inch fish. Uh, in the Clearwater River in Idaho, you've got an A and a B run. And these B run fish came in after the first push of summer fish. And they were these massive, massive 40-inch steelhead that fought all the way back to Idaho. Um, you've got Skagit River and Puget Sound winter steelhead. And you've got coastal hoe fish um, on the Olympic Peninsula. I mean, they're just, boy, you can, you go to every single watershed and you're going to have a distinct population that perfectly co-evolved to that watershed. Um, but they're all rainbow trout. They're amazing. So, They're amazing, guys. So in the in the Pacific, they can end up all the way over by Japan, and then yeah. I know Idaho isn't on the coast. So what no, kind sir. of distances inland are we talking about these fish migrating? <laughs> oh man. Um, I get these numbers wrong off the top of my head, but they're going to swim upriver 500 miles to get inland and they're going to climb a thousand feet. Um, you know, these fish before dams blocked the end of their passage, they used to go all the way um, up into Northern Nevada. You know, you could, they would cruise up the snake river and what's, you know, if you look at like a map of the Columbia, just for example, the two main branches are the Columbia and the snake river. And then you've got tributaries up and down it. Right. And so at the mouth of the Columbia, you got fish pulsing in from June through October, uh, summer steelhead, but they're all destined for different places. Some of those fish are going to turn the corner and go up the Deschutes. Some are going to turn the corner and go to the Klickitat. Some are going to keep pushing and they're going to go all the way to Idaho and go to the Salmon River, uh, go to the Clearwater River. And what's really amazing is after these fish are reared in fresh water for a year or two and they head out to the Pacific, they just disperse. They cruise all over the place and they've been tracked. Yeah. As far as the coast of Japan and they're out there for a few years. Um, yeah, they're amazing. And what's really cool. Well, one of the things that's really cool about steelhead is Pacific salmon all die at the end of their migration, right? That's, that's their evolutionary life history. They come back, they spawn, and then their bodies fertilize and support the ecosystems there. But a steelhead can make this journey multiple times in their life. Um, and it's rigorous. And the further they swim, the less likely they are to survive it. You know, those Idaho fish don't survive and repeat spawn at the same rate as like a coastal steelhead. But they are capable of it. In fact, a couple of years ago, there was a or a year ago, there was a biologist who posted a cool story about uh, a fish they caught with, did a scale sample, and it's made that journey to Idaho like three times over its lifetime. And those are your big, wow. powerful genetic lineages, and that's what we're working to protect. It's amazing. They are, wow. they are amazing. I mean, no doubt. And, you know, most of us, we engage with these fish as anglers, right? And they are big, powerful, inspiring sport fish. You know, they're going to, they're an incredibly aggressive sport fish. They're going to smash your spoon, smash that swung fly, and they're going to beat you up. But the more you get into it, the more you realize, God, they're just an amazing, amazing uh, ecological function. Well, Greg, that's a good overview. I'm, I'm glad you told us that because I know a little bit about these fish, but I learned something there too. I, I did not know they could do the trip a few times. So that's oh, pretty yeah. cool. It's crucial. No, that's it's really super cool. cool. You know, and then I'm really aware of the fact that we've got a general audience here. You know, it's like, I, 
I travel yeah. in these circles where we're talking about steelhead day in and day out, but um, I actually got my start uh, in the Great Lakes because I'm from the Midwest originally. And, you know, these fish have been planted in the Great Lakes and there's a really dedicated um, audience, community yeah. of anglers fishing all throughout the Great Lakes for migratory fish. And they're the descendants of steelhead. But the Wild Steelhead Coalition, our work is in the native range, the Pacific range of sure. uh, wild steelhead. And so that's, that's yeah. there's a lot of people in the Midwest and in the Great Lakes region that are fired up and helping out. I certainly cut my teeth there, but our work is about the Pacific uh, watersheds. That's probably a good uh, segue too, Greg, to tell us a little bit about uh, what the Wild Steelhead Coalition is, what what they set out to do, their mission, so on. Yeah, right on. Um, so the Wild Steelhead Coalition, I'm I'm one of the new guys. You know, Wild Steelhead Coalition has been around about 20 years. I've been involved uh, about four. Um, and the Wild Steelhead Coalition, when it was formed, the first meeting took place in Puget Sound when these really famous spring winter steelhead fisheries, catch and release fisheries were closed due to low numbers. And there was a group of anglers who got together and they were trying to figure out what had happened and what to do about it. And one of our founders is still on the board, a guy named Rich Sims, one of the leaders in this movement. And when he describes it, he just talks about these were guys who were anglers. They didn't set out to be conservationists, but they saw things changing, changing for the worse. And they knew they had to get involved and they formed the wild steelhead coalition. And for 20 years, they've been fighting for better regulations, habitat protections, working to educate anglers, uh, and then get involved with the political decisions that, um, drive steelhead restoration, drive steelhead protection. But fundamentally, we are a grassroots group working to give anglers tools. Like we want to be on the water. We want to be fishing. We know anglers are people who care about these fish and we want to give them the tools to do the work. That's awesome. I think, you know, <laughs> these fish are there's just some about them. These anadromous fish. <laughs> every time, every time you read about them, every time you see something about them, we had Mark Titus from Save What You Love. I don't know if you know him uh, on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, a while ago, filmmaker, and boy, some of the films he's making. Every time I watch them, I just get chills. It's like these critters are going clear out in the middle of the ocean, and yeah. they swim back here and they figure it out. There is just something so fantastic and brilliant about that. And yeah. man, how can we not take care of that? Right. Like that, there's something there. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, and Aaron, when we were talking previously, you know, we're wild steel coalition, our members, me, like it's all true. Like we're anglers, right. And there's something mysterious and visceral and powerful about being on these watersheds and looking for these fish and hoping to cross paths with a fish that's been out and back. Right. It's, it's unbelievable. And, if you've ever, you know, stood in a river in Idaho and been kind of blown away by how many miles those fish have traveled and how many dams they've crossed to get there, it's humbling. But the more I get into this work, the more my, maybe not my focus, but my awareness has grown to sort of understand these fish, not just as this incredible species to pursue and interact with, but as I think more and learn more about how they fit into the whole ecological function of the West, I just, yeah, to your point, like how can we not step up and uh, not let these things slip away? Amazing critters. Well, that's, Amazing critters. That's, that's probably a perfect, you know, opportunity to jump over and start talking about in October, the Steelhead Coalition, the Wild Steelhead Coalition launched this new campaign called Now or Never. Yes, sir. And I'm, I'm going to let you just tell us what it is, but I read something in here that I thought kind of just summed up, you know, exactly what we were just talking about. And I don't know who wrote this. Maybe you can take credit. That'd even be better. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to read just a couple of sentences here that I think kind of sums up a lot of this, which includes salmon to me, uh, mm -hmm. this, this situation. And uh, I'll just quote, 
Each wild fish is proof of the species' astounding resilience, diversity, and adaptability. As anglers and conservationists, we need to build on their time-tested will to survive and let it inspire our fight for their future and home waters. To me, that kind of was like two sentences that said like, that's it. That's what we need to do. This whole thing, it's why and it's what we need to do. So I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, man. I'm so glad to hear that resonating. Um, Yeah, so last year was the 20th anniversary of the Wild Steelhead Coalition. And 10 years ago, we had put out um, a piece called The State of Steelhead, and it was sort of an update on the conditions. And we wanted to build on that um, with a big call for what this moment as a steelhead angler and a steelhead conservationist and a steelhead advocate needs to mean, right? And so we we came up with this idea of wild steelhead now or never, and it's sort of a reiteration of our work and a recommitment to this fight and in this moment. And it's the first part is this um, essay on our website, uh, wildsteelhoodcoalition.org is the easiest way to find it. You can also connect to it through our Instagram and Facebook channels. But it's a three-part essay. And the first part is laying out the stakes. The second part is a broad overview of the causes for decline, but also what work has to happen to to restore this habitat, restore these fisheries, save these fish. And then the third part is this kind of crucial thing of if you're a steelhead angler, you have an opportunity and a responsibility to really get in this fight. And in the 21st century, you probably got to be an advocate and a conservationist as much as you are an angler. And the third chapter is really about that rallying cry. I love the way it's broken into three parts. You know, it's... Uh it allows you to attack it and digest it, you know, in pieces instead of all at the same time. And a lot of times I get accused by people of being the, I'm always down when I talk about conservation. I'm like, well, we got to talk about the bad. And I I think (laughs) I emailed Aaron when he sent me the link. And the first thing I wrote was, all right, this sounds bad. (laughs) What's up with steelhead? I mean, I've read it. So it, it looked bad, you know, talk us through it. I mean, the state of them right now. Yeah, guys, it's it's tough. You know, there's there's a joke that environmentalists don't get invited back to parties because we can be such downers, right? But I do think salmon and steelhead conservation, we got to be real clear-eyed, and we're not going to get anywhere unless we start really acknowledging the facts. And these populations, steelhead populations, have been in decline largely um, for years due to a bunch of reasons, and we can talk about those for sure. But this year was, this year in particular was a real wake up call. Uh, the Columbia Basin had the worst record, worst worst recorded runs on history. They've got hard dam counts at Bonneville Dam, which was the first big dam they count. They've been counting fish since 1938, and this year was the lowest. Um, the iconic North Umpqua on Oregon's coast it closed early uh, due to hot water and low fish returns. And then the real kicker was the Skeena system in northern BC, you know, this iconic uh, steelhead destination. It's thought of as just utterly pristine. There's no big hydropower projects, but they had the worst steelhead return uh, on record as well. And so it's, you know, and then you got years and years of kind of that shifting baseline of closures and degraded systems and low populations, you know, the Olympic peninsula, we're in a big fight right now about what the future of that fishery is going to look like. And um, the cumulative returns last year were about the lowest it's ever been and really needs to turn around the Thompson river in Southern BC, this iconic fishery is down to a hundred fish. Right. Mm. Um, And there's some bright spots out there, but generally it's, this is why we called it now or never our back is against the wall and these fish need intervention and they need anglers to step up and turn it around. And we but should say, yeah, go ahead. I mean, they're hurting. I, I don't think we have to pretend otherwise. Yeah. We should say too, you've, you've broken this thing, this now or never campaign into three chapters. The first one is wild steelhead on the brink. 
So this is what we're talking about. And I'd like you, if you could, to talk about the numbers we're seeing now compared to, you know, the heyday, because I think that's the, that contrast, even not that long ago, 20, 30 years, you know, relatively, that's not that long ago. What were we looking at compared to the runs we're seeing now? Well, steelhead populations have always varied, right? Um, they, they wobble. Um, but I mean, God, what are the exact numbers? Um, I don't quite have them in front of me, but this year we were, we were below 100,000 fish returning to the entire Columbia Basin, right? Well below. And this is a river system that used to have millions of fish come back, hundreds of thousands. Um, and even, even in the last few generations, there were years where, um, you know, four times as many fish were returning, even kind of in recent lifetime. Um, we're, we're at the bottom. We're at the bottom. You know, river systems like the Skagit River and North Puget Sound, like historically, they think there there were probably 100,000 fish returning to that river. Um, and in the last few years, we've kind of ranged between nine and four um, and as low as two. Two? The, like literal two, yeah. not 200? No, no, 2,000. 2000, 2000, 2000, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, the, the Thompson River, for example, that's a river that we've got less than 100 fish in it right now. Um, a number of years ago before it closed, it was sort of seeing regular returns of around five or 6,000. And that was enough to support a fishery. But before then you'd have 10, 20,000 fish returning every year and using that habitat. It almost sounds like there's not a fishery in a lot of places anymore. I mean, what, what's the attitude of fishermen? What, what's happening there? It's tough, Bill. Um, we've lost a lot of fisheries. There's a lot of closed rivers. And there's also a lot of rivers that we're fishing that we've been fishing as they've been declining. And, you know, anglers now are better at catching steelhead than ever before. We've got better equipment, better rain jackets that let us stay out all day. Um, there might be fewer fish in those systems, but we can find them. And so anglers have still been getting feedback for generations. And, you know, Rich Sims talks about this a lot, you know, like even before Puget Sound closed, they, those guys were catching fish still. And those last few fish, you got more anglers chasing them, more enthusiasm for the experience, more people on the river with better gear and more information than ever before. Um, and they're going to find those fish and steelhead are aggressive. So if there's three fish holding in that run or 30, you could probably still get those three fish to move and grab your fly, grab your spoon. Fitz, let's talk about the intersection of, you know, angling, conservation, steelhead fishing. I mean, I, one of the things you and I discussed prior was just, you know, boy, as bad as it gets, some people still don't want to, you know, engage in conservation that much. And, you know, we both have this feeling of like, you know, we get this awesome resource, this privilege what's our obligation where, where, you know, what, what's the minimum kind of operating requirement for, for folks who go and utilize this resource. And, you know, what are you finding on this campaign? What are you hearing from anglers and seeing out there? You know, the, the response to the campaign has been really encouraging and really incredible. We've been getting a ton of good feedback and lots of fist bumps and lots of pats on the back and lots of rallying. Um, but, you know, I think this is a, this is something we face across all, outdoor wreck, man. It's like we, you know, I'm a steelhead angler, right? My friends are steelhead anglers. This is what we want to be doing. And that's the inspiring part, right? Is being out on the water. And we forget that if, if we're going to hang on, if this, if this activity is going to continue, someone has to step up and make the changes, um, that are going to restore these fisheries and protect these fish. And I, you know, when we were talking at the wild steelhead coalition, like we think it's anglers, we think anglers have a, a responsibility to really give back, um, and really find a way to speak up and be advocates for these watersheds because our neighbors don't necessarily know they don't necessarily care. And I'll say, you know, I, if, if you're a carp angler, you love your favorite thing in the world is fishing for carp. Carp are doing great, right? They they thrive in hot, dirty water. They're going to be okay for a long time. 
But if you love fishing for steelhead and you want to take your kids fishing for steelhead and you want these fish to exist in their home waters and you know how important they are as an angler, you got to step up. And I think anglers for a long time have been really good and they should be commended for intentionally reducing their harm. We're catch and release anglers now. We mash the barbs down on our hooks. We, uh, we fish less than we used to. And there's a whole group of anglers who are calling for the closures when they're necessary or demanding the changes that need to get made. But we have to get past this trap of just reducing harm as the baseline keeps shifting. And we have to find a way to do more. We got to become a net positive. And I think that's really, I think that's really how we're going to turn it around. And now let's pause for a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sports Women. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. You know, we, you hear us say it all the time or me say it all the time. With this privilege comes the obligation, right? It's, it's all the various factors, whether it be, you know, pressure, degradation, climate. There's so many different things are leading to a situation where we can't just, you know, take, I yeah. guess, is, is the easiest way to, to do it. We have to give, too. We have to add some input back into the system that is a net gain for these fish and other critters. Totally. I also think, you know, anglers, I think sometimes bristle at the idea of personal responsibility, you know, that we're, you know, those of us on the conservation side of things are kind of a buzzkill. You know, we're trying to be political. We're trying to, um, you know, be that downer uh, and get in the way of the good times. But really, I find the work inspiring. You know, I, I think part of being a steelhead angler in the 21st century is to really embrace the idea of being a guardian for these fish, not just the beneficiary of these fish. You know, it's it's a privilege to be on a steelhead river. Um, but when I'm off that river, we got to be doing work and they need our help. And an individual angler has opportunities to contribute. But really, we also have to think of our whole community and that's how we're going to address the scale of change needed, right? And in the same way that we're, we're packing onto these rivers and our cumulative effects, uh, our pressure on these fisheries, imagine if we could take that same pressure and then shift it to our managing agencies and say, like, look, we're all out here and we're going to build the coalitions and we're going we're gonna to speak into the voice and we're going to start knocking down more dams and we're going to start setting aside habitat and we're going to, man, we want progress. We want, we want to save these fish and we're all going to speak up. That's the, that's the goal, man. I, I I want to be, I want to be floating down a steelhead river and look at all the people fishing and know that they're in the fight, right? That they're not just fishing and going home and not, not doing anything. I want to be in it. And, you know, just as on a personal level, um, you know, I was a steelhead angler for many years before I was pulling my weight in the conservation space. And I still have a long way to go. I don't want anyone to listen to this and think that I'm bragging or, you know, holding myself up as some kind of gold standard or anything like that. I, I spent a lot of money on gears, on gear, spent a lot of money on waders. I've got a raft on a trailer. I love traveling to fish for steelhead. Um, but I realized at some point that I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything on the same scale to give back. And there's something very powerful about, you know, putting some money where my mouth is, uh, contributing to the organizations, knocking down dams, getting my letters written, uh, sending, you know, feedback to management agencies, sending letters to politicians. It actually, it actually feels great to be in the fight and given back. And 
I've got room to grow, you know, like I want to be making more public comments at meetings and I want to help other anglers come along on that journey and um, really push, really push for that. And I think that's, that's kind of what it is to be a new steelheader, a steelheader in the 21st century. You know, it's like, I, I joke that the classic hero shot, you know, we call that in fishing, right? The hero shot is me holding up a huge steelhead and essentially bragging about this amazing fish that I caught and celebrating that encounter. But imagine if, if the new hero shot was me holding up the letter I'm sending to the fish and wildlife commission or me showing up at a meeting to provide public comment. And that, that kind of became like part and parcel of what it is to be a steelhead anger, you know, on one hand, you're out there benefiting and soaking up from these incredible experiences and, you know, living on these rivers and chasing these fish. And on the other hand, with just as much intensity and just as much passion and just as much resources, um, I'm fighting to save them. And that's, that's, that's the way forward. That's what I'm looking for. That's what we're trying to do. I think you hit on something important that, you know, Aaron and I get to work in conservation every day. So sometimes to normal people, it probably sounds like we're getting on them. We get it. You work 40 hours a week. You have family obligations. You have all this stuff going on. But there's so many things like some of the examples you brought up that really are yes easy, fast, and effective. Yeah, you know, um, there's just room. There's room to do the work. And we got to make the connection. You know, like I, we spend a lot of time tying flies and planning trips and we find time for all that inspiring, inspiring work. You know, we find time for the good times. Um, but we got to carve out a little space for that, um, that advocacy, that other work, put our money where our mouth is. I think it all adds up and I need anglers to lean into that work. And, you know, we're talking about steelhead today, but I think this this applies to everybody's favorite fisheries. You know, like I know the striped bass guys on the East Coast are in the same fight. Um, Atlantic salmon folks have been doing the same work for years, but um, we got to be there. We got to show up because we're going to lose these fisheries. We're going to lose these rivers if we don't. And that's that's too much of a price to pay, you know. Definitely is. Let's slide over to the restoration and recovery piece of, of now or never then, because that's really where we chapter need to two. go, obviously. Yeah. And I think, yeah, chapter <laughs> two. And I think, you know, as you mentioned in here, people have known about the habitat, harvest, hatcheries, and hydro. Those are kind of been the things. Four that H's. Are, you know, the, the plaguing. Yeah, the four H's. But you added yeah. heat, which I thought both was important and then poignant this year because we yeah. saw... 113 degrees in Portland and we saw 110 degrees in Mm -hmm. Seattle, like temperatures that I I didn't even know that it was even possible to get that kind of heat. I I thought 90, 90, 95 degrees in Portland is, is really hot and 15, 20 degrees above that. Oh my gosh. I, I, you know, so not to drag us too far out into the heat sink, but (laughs) tell us the the restoration and recovery piece of this and what we need to be thinking about. Yeah. Well, part of this is that anglers are really good about trading notes about techniques and getting better, you know, reading gear reviews and getting caught up on what it is to catch these fish. Um, But there's a disconnect sometimes where we're a step removed from the ecology and the science and the work being done to sort of understand how these fish thrive and what has caused those declines. And for many years, um, Scientists and conservationists have talked about the four H's, and you hit them, right? Harvest, hatcheries, habitat, and hydro. And quickly, you know, that speaks to hydros, the huge dams, and the barriers to migration that cut off spawning habitat and change the way rivers function. Hatcheries refers to um, the use of domesticated stocks to provide fisheries when they when the wild fish have been lost, or to flood systems with fish from different basins and move them around. And that's known to have um, impacts on the wild fish diversity and their ability to thrive. Habitat speaks to all the land use changes that have degraded the ability of rivers to sustain 
fish populations. And for, in the Northwest, that's a lot of legacy logging damages, but it's also the channelization and land development where um, riparian zones have been cut or estuaries have been um, uh, curtailed to provide more farming land, things like that. Um, it can also refer to pollution. Um, and then harvest, of course, is just killing too many fish, impacting too many fish. Um, steelhead were a really important commercial fishery um, in the first part of the 20th century, and their numbers just got hammered uh, to support canneries. And so that was probably the first big dent we put in their populations before hmm. dams and habitat really sealed the deal. Uh, but, you know, and then anglers killed fish for years. Uh, and now the numbers are so small that we're realizing unlimited catch and release fishing is having impacts on populations. Um, and so harvest is sort of the category of how we interact and take fish out of the system. And so those four things, um, all salmon and steelhead restoration efforts have been focused on remediating, remediating those. We got to kill fewer fish. We have to harm fewer fish so that those that return can spawn. We need to protect the habitat we have, and we have to really spend money and make some major investments to lean into habitat restoration. And we see progress when that happens. Um, we got to, with the hatcheries, we got to find ways to really carve out places for wild fish to thrive. We got to protect those unique genetic lineages and let that diversity um, thrive in those watersheds because that's that is the key to resilience. That's the key that lets these fish deal with new extremes and utilize the, the habitat they have as, as efficiently as they can. Nothing beats a wild fish. They're, they're the fighters. They're the survivors. Um, and then hydropower, you know, this country has built a ton of dams and dams block spawning habitat. They change the flow of water. They heat the water up. And wherever we can, we got to be pulling these dams down, especially as infrastructure ages, you know. Um, and on the Awa River or on Washington's Olympic Peninsula, we've seen the, the biggest dam removal in history. And summer steelhead are bouncing back after being cut off from the ocean for a century. Um, the Klamath dams are coming down. There's lots of, lots of small dams coming down in Puget Sound and across the west. And then all eyes are focused on getting the four lower Snake River dams um, yanked out to save Idaho's fish. But is there a lot of pushback on removing those dams? You know, Bill, that's a really interesting question. And the short answer is, yeah, it kind of depends. Um, there's a lot of small defunct dams that aren't providing services anymore. And that's a pretty big unifier to start pulling those things out. Um the really, really big hydropower dams, you know, undeniably they've got uh, power benefits and um, maybe some flood control here and there, depending on the dam. Um, the Snake River dams were built actually to provide barge traffic up and down the Columbia. And so you can imagine the, the wheat farmers who ship wheat that way, like they're really concerned about how they're going to move that material if those dams go away. But I actually think of dams as a huge unifier in the sport fishing community and the steelhead community because, you know, anglers, we can be pretty contentious. We'll fight with each other about how we're fishing and who should be fishing. Um, but one thing that brings uh, tribal governments together and conservationists and anglers, uh, we get on the same page with dam removal and every major dam removal you've seen uh, is a result of communities coming together and saying, no, we're going to, we're going to restore this river. We're going to bring those fish back. We're going to give them room. And I, I think dam, dam removal is a huge unifier. Um, and we've got opportunities to do a lot of it. And so we got to really prioritize that. But you asked about heat. And so we added this fifth H. We aren't the first people to do it, um, but we really saw it as important. And he, we added heat, right? And this is a, this refers broadly to the impacts of climate change and kind of the growing awareness of what that means for these anadromous fisheries, steelhead fisheries in particular, salmon fisheries in particular. And God, the, 
the impacts are compounding. You know, you're talking about this heat this summer, unprecedented heat waves that bears down on your freshwater environment. Steelhead are a trout. They're cold water species. They need cold, clean water. And that heat means your snowpack is melting earlier. You're probably gonna have droughts in the summer where your water flows are lower. And those temperatures start getting up. They start ticking up into lethal ranges and you start losing smolt and fry that are rearing in the river. But you also risk losing fish that are returning and smashing into these big walls of hot water. And the problem is that dams in these systems have these huge impoundments that just roast in the sun and artificially heat the water up even higher than they would under these heating regimes. And so it's just another reason why we got to remove as many of these dams as possible because they're they're exacerbating the hot water impacts of climate. Um, again, on the freshwater side, climate change also means that you're going to get these really intense and sporadic uh, changes to moisture and rain regimes. You know, right now, uh, southern British Columbia and northern Washington have just been pounded by floodwaters, huge, huge floodwaters. And these came in the fall. And when that happens, um, you're washing out salmon nests and you're, you risk washing away fry and smolt if they can't get access to soft water and floodplains. And that's where it intersects with that habitat restoration work. You got to have room for rivers to expand and uh, contract. But this spring on the Olympic Peninsula, we had an unseasonally warm, dry, late spring. So there were uh, steelhead reds, nests, that were probably left out of the water as the rivers receded, right? And so we're going to see these uncertainties in uh, weather regimes that change and impact the resilience of these watersheds. And so in planning for climate, we got to have ways to say we're going to protect these fish, get them up there, and know that not every year is going to be a consistent um, producer. And then finally, the really crazy thing about heat is its impact on the ocean. And this is something that steelheaders are really waking up to in the last few years. And in fact, you know, the massive declines on the Columbia system and the Skeena system and on the Olympic Peninsula up and down the coast in the last few years has really been due to poor ocean survival. And that's pegged to a couple of factors. One is there's there's been this big warm water blob in recent years sitting out in the North Pacific. And when the North Pacific is hot, the upwelling of colder, food-rich waters gets curtailed and slowed down. And so all these copepods and the, the little bugs and things uh, that juvenile fish and the food of fish eat get suppressed. And so the fish get out there and there just isn't enough food. Um, and then that temperature regime means that the North Pacific is the amount of amount of land, amount of water, amount of area where the fish can thrive, um, gets shrunk just a little bit by little bit. And so there's just less productivity in the ocean. And that's a real wake up call. The acidifying ocean means that small zooplankton and things, uh, aren't thriving as well. Um, yeah. And that's that's a rallying cry, you know, like that's, that's something anglers really, really need to wake up to um, because climate's going to have big effects on our changing climate's going to have big effects on both freshwater and saltwater ecosystems. And it, it really adds urgency to the work to preserve habitat, provide access to cold water, protect cold water, like crazy, restore it where we can. Um, you know, the state of Alaska, farms a ton of pink salmon by dumping them in the ocean and there's probably too many mouths to feed out there we got to start thinking about how we how we leave the ocean for wild fish and how we make sure there's enough food out there so yeah lots of lots of really tough decisions coming down the pipe but um climate climate adds urgency it has to be a part of our decision making process going forward for sure man this is thick <laughs> I can go on and on, so I, you just got to cut me off if I'm if I'm. The, well, the ocean aspect of it is fascinating to me. I mean, the hot water. I never it never dawned on me before now. That oh no, I mean that was an impact for steelhead. Yeah, and Bill, like if you think about it, as steelhead anglers, we interact with these fish in the freshwater environment. You know, we're trying to cross paths when they're coming home, 
And so all of our all of our perspective is on river systems. And so it makes sense right away that yeah, we want to knock down dams and patch up habitat where it's where it's lost. And we got to have fishing regulations for those systems that are responsible and reduce our impacts. And then the ocean is this big dark hole. We're like, <laughs> oh yeah, they go out there for three or four years and uh many of us didn't think about it. But it's uh we really, it's got to be on our radar and we got to start pushing on policy that, um, you know, is big climate policy for sure, but also um, fisheries that acknowledge climate. You know, when we, when we have hot conditions in the summer, that's a good time to get people off the water and let the fish rest. And um, when we know we're anticipating bad ocean returns, bad ocean survival, we got to anticipate um curtailed seasons. And I, th- I think there's a responsibility that comes for an angler to say like, okay, this year we got to have a really light touch. And maybe when we get a good year of returns, that's when we can kind of go after them a little harder. And I think that's going to be part of the rhythm of um, adapting to climate, uh, adapting our fisheries to climate change. And then, you know, getting fish, um, getting fish on the gravel and tr- just trying to produce as many fish as we can. Um, I'm, I'm glad yeah. you're mentioning this, Greg, because one of the things that, you know, we try to do is help convey the climate issue to the sporting community and help them understand what these mean. And, you know, you touched on a few of them, how climate is kind of this big, you know, specter looming over all of these issues that if, if not are the cause are the exacerbator of many of these issues, you know, ocean acidification, breaking down the food web, warmer temperatures in these waters, uh, making it harder, less oxygen, breaking down food chains. There's a lot of different things that climate either does or makes worse. And, you know, they, they don't Mm -hmm. seem like the primary cause sometimes coastal erosion, another huge one, right? If you're talking about anadromous fish, that are all, you know, bigger storms, more extreme events like you're talking about. We're in we're in deep drought down here in southern Colorado and you're getting yeah. all the rain. Why don't you shoot a little over to us? You know, yeah. the systems are are off just a little bit and and all these little seemingly subtle things that are connected by, you know, just a few degrees warmer on the planet are gonna just make events more extreme all over the place. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. Well, let's talk too about some of the some of the, uh, you know, what we can do about this for one, you know, we just, and I should put in a little plug. We just, uh, put out a report hunters and anglers guide to climate change challenges, opportunities, and solutions. And that's really about some of these things and many others look at, look at across the country and, and really pointing to things like restoration and resilience work that improves hunting and fishing while we're at it, right? Yes. If we make a, if we restore those wetlands and rebuild those rivers, like you're talking about, pull those dams out, they're going to make us better, you know, ready for climate problems and they're going to improve hunting and fishing. So why the heck wouldn't we want that for one? (laughs) So yeah, man, they're win-wins, right? Yeah. And one of the things we talk about in there is actually this, this Simpson plan, the, the four dam removal and this whole collaborative you know, thing that's going on up in the Northwest that is, is designed to do many of those things. Um, and I don't know if you want to speak to that at all, if we need to kind of move along here, but it's something that we've supported. Uh, we think it's the right kind of deal, right? Where you get a bunch of people together, you figure out all the different stakeholders and you try to plot out a plan that, you know, some get all, uh, you know, or, or sorry, all get some, but not, but nobody gets everything. Cause that's what a negotiation is. So, um, yeah, you know, like, uh, Simpson turned heads when he came out this winter with this big idea of removing the snake river dams to restore salmon. And the science has been telling us for years that that's the crucial roadblock for salmon and steelhead on the upper snake and the, uh, uh, into Idaho watersheds. And the, his vision got a lot of support from tribes and a lot of support from the environmental community was, to invest widely to replace the benefit of the dams. And I, I do think that's the perspective going forward. And there's nuances to that that would have to get hammered out in negotiations. You know, there's some details in that plan proposal that we weren't totally thrilled about, but the overarching idea that 
as a large Northwestern community, we got to look at this holistically and build a way forward. And uh, this summer uh, at the Salmon Orca Summit, I was really responsible, uh, really inspired by uh, a presentation Shannon Wheeler of the Nez Perce tribe gave where he was talking about, you know, like they're advocating for removing these dams to restore salmon for their cultural heritage and for the treaty obligations they deserve. You know, they don't want to see these fish go away and they're going to bat for them. But he also talked about, how he's like, Hey, we are energy users. We turn the lights on in our house. He's like, we've got agricultural lands. He's like, we're doing this work because salmon are for everybody and salmon and steelhead are for the entire basin Everybody needs cold, clean water. This is the way forward for the whole region. We can't afford to lose these fish. We just can't afford to lose them. Not only are they part of our identity, but salmon in particular are the ecological keystone of the entire Northwest. They, you, know, you should think of them as big bags of swimming fertilizer that are coming up river and when they die, they're feeding the trees, they're feeding the animals, they're taking these sterile watersheds and growing the insects, like all that phosphorus and nitrogen that they carry back from the ocean, they carry them hundreds of miles inland, and they feed these systems. And man, like that, we just can't let these fish slip away. You know, I'm, I'm an angler, I, I want to be out there catching a couple of steelhead and getting beat up by them once in a while. But really, we need these whole systems working. And, you know, Mike Simpson's proposal, it was never legislation. It didn't get picked up in the infrastructure budget. But now he kind of kicked the hornet's nest. And we're seeing um, some Northwest leaders, Inslee and Murray, are starting to look at this real hard. And we have to push on them to make sure the dam removal is on the table. And, um, yeah, there's a big opportunity. And I, I just think... Well, I don't think, I mean, we know that some of those populations in that upper basin, they are hovering at extinction. They're barely, barely hanging on. And it's time to do something big. Um, there's incredibly intact, high elevation habitat in Idaho. And you talk about climate, right? That Those are climate refuges. That's water that's going to stay cold. And it's going to stay clean. And we got to give these fish a way to get back and forth, get up there. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because we did we did open a can of worms with Simpson's deal, and there's more to be done, and and it is time for something big. Let's repeat that: it's time oh. for something big. It's time. Something has yeah, to. Yeah, I give. couldn't agree more. Yeah, something has to give here. Yeah, let's talk about that, Fitz, because uh, you know what we we don't have too much time left, and we need folks to know what the heck they do, how they stay informed, you know, what the appropriate level of engagement. I I really want to try to hit that. If you're a regular Joe or Jane, like what's your appropriate level? What do you, I mean, of course it's personal, but you know, what's kind of the minimum operating amount if you're a steelheader or a salmon fisher person or, or whatnot, what, what should you be doing? And if you're not from the area and you're not a steelheader, yeah, good point. what can you be doing? That's a lot of our work is getting people from other places to support restoration efforts down here. So, well, I mean, there's, if you're a steelhead angler, I think the first thing you got to do is really, really admit that they need help. And that's a funny reductivist thing to say, right? Because it's, you take it at face value, but I'm amazed over and over again at how much of the steelhead angling culture is still only focused on getting out and catching fish and celebrating that experience. And it neglects the fact that, uh, these fish aren't doing very well. You know, this year we had one of the worst runs. We had the worst run ever recorded on the Columbia. And I was pretty surprised at how few places were even admitting that, right, within the fishing community. And so I think the first thing we can do is to sort of own it. And when we're talking about steelhead, we have to understand that our angling is inspiration, but it comes with this work. And so part of it is just telling the story of, um, getting involved and speaking up and admitting that they need help. And part of that comes with being that new hero, you know, like not only am I a good angler if I'm catching fish, uh, 
but I gotta, I gotta start bragging about giving back and bring people along and show what that looks like, you know, for a long, I'm a, I'm a fly fisherman. I love the swung fly. I love two handed rods. Um, that's my, that's my favorite way to do this, but I spent a lot of time and money learning how to do that from people who I wish were also telling me, and it comes with responsibility. And I think we have, we all have a role where we can sort of say like this, this is part and parcel. We're all doing this together. And then, you know, we have our voice and we have our money and that's, those are our tools in America. That's how we get to engage with leadership. And I think we got to find ways to build coalition. If we can, spend a little less time fighting with each other about how we're going to fish and spend more time demanding that our managing agencies and our politicians make the investments they need to get these dams removed, make the investments in habitat restoration. And that means picking up the phone and calling your legislator. That means sending that letter uh, for public comment periods, you know, telling the managers like you're, you're the adult in the room, like the buck stops there. Like, make the hard decisions and really lean on them. And I, I would like to see fishing brands that depend on these fisheries uh, speaking up. And I want to see individual anglers speaking up. Um, and then we also have our financial resources. You know, I think um, to the best of our ability, I want to see anglers making donations and supporting the organizations that are doing this work. You know, like I can't get a dam removed by myself, but I can help financially support the organizations who are leading that charge. And I don't have the ability to um, engineer a habitat restoration project, but there are organizations doing that work. And if I'm going to spend hundreds of dollars on fishing trips and gear, like some of that money I should be sending to these groups that are rebuilding and uh, redoing that work. And I just think it comes part and parcel. And, you know, if I walk into a fly shop and I'm looking for a new spay rod and there's, a row of rods on the rack and I know one of those companies is really giving back and I see that like that's what I want to support as well and so I want it to be a virtuous cycle and I just think every lever has to be pulling in the right direction um, and the the time has passed for sitting on the sidelines and thinking we're just going to go out and beat up on some fish and have a good time and go home um, every one of us has a role to play you got that Oh, and, and Bill's, Bill had a great question, just to finish the thought. Bill had a great question about the region, you know, like steelheading was always this niche thing, but it has exploded in popularity. And it, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a game warden on the Olympic Peninsula, and he laughs about how many out-of-state guys and how many out-of-state anglers he's checking their licenses. And every year, you know, he's like, oh, these three guys from England are here for the week. Oh, here's some, here's a group of guys from Japan that are fishing the Solduck and this is steelhead is a worldwide phenomenon, you know, and we just did this uh, big fundraising push on Instagram and man, a ton of the support came from anglers in the great lakes came from anglers in the Southeast who fly out for an annual trip. Um, good buddy of mine from Minnesota, you know, he's, he's donating and he's putting his money where his mouth is. Um, I think we all have work to do and we've all got a voice because we're stakeholders in these fisheries. Um, yeah, so there's, everyone's welcome, Bill. Everyone's welcome. There's work to do. And those of us who are on the ground fighting for our local rivers and the guys coming from the, uh, the people coming from far away, uh, to really celebrate these places, there's work to do, plenty of work to do. And it's our job as professional conservationists to help, uh, get the word out like we're doing right now. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, man, we got to. <laughs> We need tools, right? Because if, if you're an angle, you got to know where to put that energy. And I, um, yep, yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, with that, uh, wildsteelheadcoalition.org. And if you go in there and you look at backslash now or never, you'll find this new campaign, but many other resources. And they'll, they'll give you, check them out on Instagram and Facebook too. And we'll put that in the show notes. Great. And Greg, if there's uh, any other you know, links or other things you think folks should take a look at, let me know and I'll get them in there as well. Absolutely. We'll give you a chance uh, to give us a parting shot. I'll, I'm going to hit Bill and ask Bill, do you have anything else you want to ask Greg before we let him go? 
Well, I, I was going to ask him whether whether it's bait, gear, or or swung fly, but he already answered. <laughs> For me personally, yeah, maybe all, huh? Yeah, you know, yeah. I think it's a great question. I'm I'm a swung fly nerd, man. Like that's that's the that's the game that got me into this, and that's that's what I love doing. But a bunch of my friends, um, really intense, passionate advocates and anglers, they fish every way possible, and the issue is bigger than community. You know, I'm, I'm a fly fisherman, Absolutely. but man, any gear angler, uh, anyone who's on those rivers, like we all got to be on the same page. And um, that's part of that bigger coalition. It's going to take all of us, man. Well, sweet. I know we're coming up here guys and I know I have a hard stop here, but Fitz, thank you so much. Keep fighting the good fight and uh, we'll, we'll keep folks informed and, you know, anytime you feel like there's something that we ought to know about or get out there in the world, please let us know and we'll we'll shoot it out through our networks and let's look for that time when we can uh, get on the river together or, or at least sit around a campfire out somewhere in the woods and, and talk about what we're doing to make this better because uh, we need all hands on deck. Uh, we've talked about this a little in, in some of these, you know, venues and, and with Mark Titus and others. This is a fight that's uh, got a ways to go if we want to get yeah. it done, so get engaged. Totally. And I, you know, guys, I so appreciate you reaching out and uh, taking the time to talk about this. I, uh, you know, I can talk about steelhead all day long and I'll just say, you know, like for years and years, all I wanted to talk about was catching steelhead. And I just think we got to put our shoulder to the work to saving them. And we got to see it um, side by side. And yeah, like you said, there's a lot of work to do and there's uh, it, it can get dark at times for sure, but there's real progress to be made. You know, there's, we still have a chance to get it right. And boy, that's, that should inspire all of us to really lean into this work because this fight isn't over yet. I love it. That hopeful spirit is uh, sorely needed and uh, we appreciate that fits. And for Bill and I, thanks for coming and uh, we'll get this word out there and we'll keep talking. Absolutely guys. Thank you so much. Happy trails, everyone. Take care, guys. Cheers. We are NWF Outdoors.